Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday service. My name is Thomas. I'm one of the pastors here. Before we get into the message, a couple of brief things I wanted to highlight. Uh, again, as was mentioned earlier today, um, starting today and, and especially, uh, especially next week, uh, Sundays might look a little different. We wanted to give our volunteers rest. And so a little bit less loud uh, for praise, a little bit less uh, ushers to greet you here. And so our church is going to be a great place for all the introverts who are out there. This will be an introverted church for the next six weeks or so. And so every single other Sunday is all for the extroverts. But these next few weeks, fellow introverts, this is for us. And so I hope that could be a restful time for our volunteers. But also, uh, as mentioned earlier, I, the best part of praise, it's not the instruments, it's not the, the songs, but it's the voices that you could really hear praising God together. And so I hope we could take advantage where we could really sing loudly and hear each other's voices as we gather um, but it's not only our volunteers taking a rest, but also we mentioned our, our pastors are going to be taking a rest. And so uh, starting next week, we're going to be having a series of guest speakers, and I'm really excited for the guest speakers that are actually coming. Uh, we try to get people who we feel like really bless and encourage our church. And so I actually want to briefly like, preview uh, what's, what's ahead and what to expect. Um, next Sunday, we have a new sermon series that's going to start. It's called um, uh, Good News, What We All Need. And pretty much we want these speakers to come and let us know, like, what is it that this church needs? What do we as... Christians and as a community that we really need to be present in our lives and to really keep in mind and to practice. And to kick off that series, uh, next Sunday we have a brother named Derek Rishmawi. He's, uh, he's actually a campus pastor at UC Irvine, but he is a wicked smart guy. He's a theologian. Uh, you know he's smart because if, uh, if you ever read any books by Tim Keller, Tim Keller always quotes this guy. And so you know he, if Tim Keller is quoting him that he is wicked smart. And he's going to kick off the series next week asking us why we need a God who does not need us is very intriguing as a title. After that, we have a brother named Timothy St. John who will be coming to preach for us. And Timothy St. John, uh, he is a counselor and a pastor. And he's going to preach about the idea of why we need to be a community that cares for the abused and for victims, which, again, I really look forward to that. Uh, the week after that, we have a brother named Dr. Ben Shin, which some of you guys might be familiar with. He is a professor at Talbot. And Dr. Ben Shin, he, uh, he's going to be preaching on uh, the idea of uh, why we need faithful leaders uh, in the church. And then lastly, to end the series, we have a brother named Nick Bogardis. He's actually part of the Harbor Network, or he might have, he, maybe he's not anymore, but he used to be part of the Harbor Network, which is our church, we're part of the Harbor Network. And uh, I don't know what he's going to preach on yet. And so it depends on what he, the Spirit convicts him to preach upon, but we'll really look forward to the next few weeks, and I hope that you guys could join us, because I think this is going to be a really awesome series uh, starting next week. So, but if you're excited about that, uh, just know that's starting next week. Today, we're doing something different. Uh, we are concluding a 15-week sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount. If you've been with us these past three months, we are finally done after today of hearing Jesus give uh, the most famous teaching that's in all the Bible. And an appropriate day because once we finish the Sermon on the Mount today and look at the end of the sermon, we're going to conclude it not just by hearing Jesus' words, but also celebrating the Lord's Supper together. So a nice bow tie to this whole past three months that we've been here. So if you have your Bibles or if you have your programs, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 7. Verses 21 to 28. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 28. And this is the last part of this long sermon series. For us, it's been 15 weeks, but if you were there in Jesus' time, this is all just within a 40-minute time frame of Jesus giving this message. And this is a sobering word that Jesus gives. And so starting verse 21, if you're there with me, you can follow along as I read it out loud. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? 
And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the reading of God's word. Have you ever been in a situation where you totally misread the situation that you were in? Where what you presumed to be true was actually not true? I witnessed this, not myself, but uh, my, back in college, my roommate. Uh, I was, like a lot of you, if you were in college, we had a, a friend group mixed with like guys and girls. And I learned that my roommate, he was actually interested in one of the sisters in this friend group. And what was more interesting was he thought she was into him as well. And all of us roommates were like, I don't know. Like, you guys are in different classes in terms of looks and personality. <laughs> like, I'm not really sure if that's going to work out. But he was, like, convinced that she liked him. Like, the feelings were mutual. And we'd ask him, like, why do you think she likes you? He was like, dude, she, on my birthday, she said happy birthday to me. I'm like, dude, she said that to me, too. Like, on my birthday. <laughs> like, that doesn't mean that they like you. Or there's another instance where he was like, oh my gosh, like she asked me to take her home and to give her a ride home to her place. She must like me. And we're like, because she lives right next to you. Of course she might ask you to take her home. That doesn't mean anything, but it did not matter. No matter what we told him, he was convinced that these were just signs that she liked them and was into him. And so one day my roommate, I remember he decided he was going to ask her out. He was going to go to her and let her know, hey, let, let's DTR, let's define the relationship, let's go out on a date. And so when we heard that, my roommates and I were like, you know, we got to make sure that this is the right call. So we messaged a girl's friends, her roommates, and we said, hey, this is a situation. He likes her, and he's going to ask her out. And they told us, the feelings are not mutual. Abort, abort, do not do it. Warn him. And so we called him. Uh, we literally were on the phone with him, and we messaged him going, hey, uh, abort, abort, do not ask her out today. Bad idea. And he told us, I'm already at her door. I'm in her front door right now, and I have flowers with me right now. It's too late, man. We're like, no, 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 it's not too late. <laughs> like, you get out, uh, abort, it's not going to work out well. But he was convinced, like, no, 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 like, trust me, guys, like, let's, it, it'll be fine. And so we'll hang up the phone, just quiet, and then, you know, within an hour or so, he comes back to our home, he's quiet, he's dejected, we know what happened, we, we figured out what, what took place. He went straight into his room, and we never talked about it again. We never mentioned this girl again to him. It was just kind of over. And uh, looking back, I have a very clear conscience. We try to warn him. We try to let him know, hey, man, she's going to close that door on you. She's not going to take your flowers. Uh, and you're misreading this rela relational situation that you are in. But he just wouldn't listen to us. He just would not listen to the warnings. And he had to pay for it by getting rejected by this girl. Uh, the reason why I bring this up is because I think Jesus is giving us a similar warning. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is all about uh, what it means to be part of the kingdom. He's describing the kingdom of God and what it looks like to be a part of this kingdom and, what it, and how, how it changes lives. And uh, he now ends this long sermon not with this inspiring story or applications of how to live it out, 
uh, but he gives a warning. Last week, the warning was, hey, as you strive to enter the kingdom, uh, there's going to be false prophets that are going to come that can mislead you. Uh, but today, he ends the sermon by saying, not only are there false prophets, but there could be false Christians or false people within the community that they don't realize that, that they're not really part of this community. Because not everybody who looks like a follower of Jesus or claims to be a follower of Jesus are actually a follower of Jesus. And Jesus is trying to warn us that that's a reality that's there in any community that proclaims Jesus' name. But the problem is a lot of us, we're part of that community. And we might be like our, my roommate. We, we misread our spiritual situation. We think, no, we're all good. We're all okay. And Jesus, he wants to give this final warning to all of us to kind of examine. Um, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 28, uh, Jesus, he's, he's given this illustration where he's first comparing two types of people. And oftentimes when Christians read this, we think, oh yeah, he's comparing a Christian and an atheist. And the, and the Christian is building his house on a rock, and the atheist is on sand, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about two types of Christians. It's two people who are going to church. It's two people who genuinely believe that they are followers of Christ, but the difference is one of them is genuine, and the other one thinks they're genuine. Because there are people who grow up their whole lives being churchy, doing all the religious stuff, but in reality, they don't know Jesus at all. And so Jesus is trying to warn us that this is something we need to pay attention to. Just like, again, I try to warn my roommate, but the consequence is not a broken heart. The consequence of this is Jesus might look at you and say, I don't know who you are. I do not know who you are. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at what does it look like to be a genuine follower of Jesus? What does it look like to really follow him? What are some signs of a genuine follower of Christ? This is not about how you become a Christian. We believe as a church that it's by faith through grace and Christ alone. But how do you know that faith is real? And how do we know we're just kind of fooling ourselves? If you're exploring Christianity or this is your first time in church in a long time, uh, this, is, this is significant because we often dismiss Christianity because we see all these hypocrites where they say they're Christians and yet their lives look totally different. And Jesus, he agrees with you. And he wants to show you this is what a Christian is supposed to look like. But if you are a Christian here, or you profess to be a Christian, uh, this is especially relevant for us because a lot of us here in the OC, we all grew up pretty churchy. We all were, a lot of us, I heard a lot of your testimonies as members, you grew up in a family that brought you to church, that forced you to go to VBS and, and to go to the youth group and so forth, and we just presume that we're okay, that we grew up in the church, no problem taking the Lord's Supper, we all take it because of course that's what you do, we profess, of course I'm a Christian, and yet it could be you grew, went to church your whole life and all that produced was religion. It's just religion that you're practicing and you're, you're mistaking that for what it really means to follow Jesus. And so today, Jesus wants to really clarify that. Like, how do you know that's real? How do you distinguish the two between a religious person and a genuine follower of Jesus? And so today, we're going to look at it in three ways, this text. Uh, number one, we're going to look at the false signs of faith. The false signs of faith. The things that we think makes us a genuine believer, and yet, not necessarily the case. Second, the true presence of faith. What is the true sign that you are actually genuinely following Christ in your life? And lastly, the necessary practice of faith. How do we actually have this type of faith in our lives? So the false signs, the true presence, the necessary practice. And just a caveat, this is a kind of a sobering, hard message. Uh, it's, it could feel a little bit, it's a warning message. And so if it's like you feel like bothered by it or you're mad, 
I am just the messenger, get mad at Jesus, because Jesus is the one who's giving this message. I'm just trying to explain what he's trying to say to us. And so with that being said, the first point, the false signs of uh, faith. Um, if, you, if I were to ask you guys, hey, how do you know if people in this room, how do you know there's a married couple in this room? Like, how do you, what are the signs of that? Um, you might have different ideas. I know I had my, my ideas. Like, when I see uh, someone in church and they come to church together and they're sitting together and then outside of service, they're standing next to each other, often I presume, oh, if it's a guy and girl, I just presume, oh, you guys are probably a married couple. Uh, but there's been many a times where I go up to them and go, hey, well, you know, my name's Thomas. Uh, how long have you two been married? And there's an awkward silence, and the guy goes, oh, she's my sister. And it's like, oh, cringe. Like, I, I just, they're never coming back. <laughs> I just mistakenly identified these siblings as lovers. And so, but I thought, you know, I thought the signs were clear. Like, they, were, they came together, they're sitting together, they're standing next to each other outside of service. But, you know, when I think about it more, it's like, wait, that could apply to any friendship. Or it could apply to roommates or to siblings. So it's not, even though married couples, that's what they do, that's not only married couples. It's actually something that even non-married couples would practice as well. What are the signs of a genuine Christian? A genuine follower of Christ? Someone whose faith is real. Verses 21 22, Jesus, he warns there are false signs. And at first glance, when we look at what Jesus is saying, it seems like Jesus is critiquing people who just say they're a Christian. Which, you know, if you've been like online dating before, you know sometimes that means nothing. When they say Christian, it doesn't mean anything. Who knows what, if they're really someone who's a Christian or not. And that's what it seems like Jesus is saying. Anyone who just says they're a Christian, don't believe it, watch out for it, and we're like, okay, all good. But when you actually look at a little more closely what Jesus is saying, these false signs that are there, uh, it's kind of scary and a little shocking because it often applies to us. The first sign that we often presume that this is genuine faith, this is more than just saying you're a Christian, this is when you know you're legit, is uh, what you believe. If you're orthodox, do you believe in the right things about Jesus? Look what, it, look what in verse 21, what the people who Jesus talks about cause Jesus. Notice the people, they don't, just call, they don't say Jesus or rabbi, they call him Lord. They address Jesus as Lord. In the Greek, the word is kurios. And the word kurios, what's interesting is uh, the New Testament, or the Bible, the, not the New Testament, the New Testament too, but the Bible that Jesus and his followers used, it was written in Greek, because there were Greek-speaking Jews, and it was translated from the Hebrew, the Hebrew Bible. And in the Hebrew Bible, it was always when it talked about God, his personal name, Yahweh. Every time it got translated into the Greek, it actually was called Kyrios. They translated it as Lord. And so for Jesus to say, these people are calling me Kyrios, they're actually attributing Jesus, you're God. You're divine. You're the same status as Yahweh. You're not just a teacher. But you have, you are almighty God, which is crazy because he's a carpenter, he's somebody who's just 30 years old, and so they have like this right orthodox view of Jesus, their doctrine is spot on, and Jesus goes, Paul, that's not necessarily a sign of faith. I don't know who you are, I'm just scary. And some of us, when we think about that, we go, hmm, yeah, you know, I do know some people where their doctrine is big. They know all the right answers, but something's off about their faith. So, yeah, I can see that. But notice the second sign. The second sign is not just what you believe, but it's what you feel. It's what you feel, your emotions. Notice that the people who come to Jesus, they don't just call him Lord, but what do they call him? Verse 22, Lord, Lord. They say his name twice. If I want to get my son's attention, or actually, if I want to get my son to come to the room, I go, hey, Judah, come here. 
But if I want to, like, get my son, like, to really pay attention, I'm like, Judah, like, my emotion kind of, it's an emotive way of saying it, my, the inflection of my voice. But in the first century, if you wanted to display emotion, you don't just say, you don't fluctuate your voice per se, but especially when you write it down, you say her name twice. Not just Martha, but Martha, Martha. That's when David, for example, in the Old Testament, when Absalom, his son, dies, he doesn't just go Absalom, but he goes Absalom, Absalom. Or when Jesus, when he prays for Jerusalem as lamenting, he doesn't go just Jerusalem, but he goes, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. There's emotion there. And so these folks that are coming to Jesus, they don't just have the right belief about Jesus. It's not just their doctrine. They feel things for Jesus. You can even say they love Jesus. Jesus, Lord, Lord. There's emotion there. And yet Jesus says, that's not what I'm looking for. Here's a third sign. It's not just knowing things about Jesus. It's not just feeling things for Jesus. But the third sign is doing things for Jesus, serving him. Sometimes we think that's right. Orthodox isn't enough. Feelings and emotions is not enough. You've got to serve Jesus. And that's when you know, like, Jesus is real and he's your legit Christian. But look what it says in verse 22. These people, it says, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. These guys are miracle workers. They cast out demons. If that happened in our church, we'd make them an elder. Wow, you cast out demons? We need one of those. And Jesus doesn't look at them going, you liars. You never cast out demons. Like, it's all fake. He doesn't say that. These people were were legitimately being used by God to help and to minister to people. And Jesus says, folks who know the right things about God, who feel the right things about God, and who even do the right things for God, what does he say to them? Verse 23, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now when Jesus says, I never knew you, it's not like, wait, who are you? Like, I don't know who you are. It's not what Jesus is saying. The word know, think Genesis, Adam and Eve knew each other. It's this intimate term of being in a relationship with each other. What Jesus is saying is, I don't, we're not in a relationship. We're, this isn't something that, you can, all that stuff, that doesn't mean that I know you. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with these signs. I'm not saying it's, you should have the right belief about Jesus. You should feel things for Jesus. You should even do things for Jesus if you're a Christian. But while Christians need to have that, that doesn't mean you're a Christian. That does, you, you could be a fake follower and still do those things. I like what uh, author Tim Keller says. He says, quote, the absence of these three traits, they demonstrate that you're maybe not a Christian. But the presence of these three traits does not demonstrate that you are because you share them with people who are inauthentic too. You could fake it. And those signs are not sufficient for what genuine faith is. Now, when you hear what Jesus is saying, this could feel very confusing and sobering Because what Jesus is saying is basically this, and it's on the screen. There are a lot of things you can know about Jesus, a lot of feelings you can have about Jesus, and a lot of things you can be doing for Jesus, but you may not have a real relationship with Jesus. And that's kind of scary because that's oftentimes the grid that a lot of us uses to determine, is my relationship with Jesus real? And and it's confusing at first, but when you break it down, it kind of makes sense. It makes sense how this works. For example... You know a lot of things about Jesus. So we think, oh, if I know, you know, if, I, if my doctrine is correct, if I go to Bible studies, if I know God, then I have a relationship with God. But when you think about it, you can actually know a lot about somebody, but not be in a relationship with them. You know, that's possible, right? 
One time I was uh, meeting with a brother. We were going through some type of mentorship, and uh, he happened to be dating a girl who I never met. And he was like, hey, can you like mentor me about my relationship with her? So like, yeah, sure. So every week we talked about this sister who he was dating, and he told me like all their, the way he loves her, what he likes about her, so I knew all her good qualities, all the fights, all her bad qualities. He told me about like her family history, because that, that was kind of the issues they were going through. He was telling me about her like Enneagram and her, her uh, Myers-Briggs. I knew like so much about this girl who I never met. And so then a year later, some event happened, and he brought his girlfriend. I was like, oh, I know so much about you. And it wasn't like I was like, hey, best friend. It was actually kind of awkward. You ever had that before where like, you know so much about this person, and you actually meet them, and you go, I know your whole life history, and I'm just meeting you now for the first time. Awkward kind of moment that took place there. And I feel like the reason why is because, again, I know a lot about her, but I didn't really know her. And similarly, I think for a lot of us here, you grew up in the church. You know a lot about who God is, what the church teaches about him. You even accept what he teaches. You even believe he's real. And yet, when you think about your relationship with Jesus, it's kind of awkward. Like when someone goes, How's, how are your relationship with Jesus? You kind of stumble on your words because you never really saw it that way. Because you know a lot about him, but you don't really like know him. Because you can know a lot about somebody without really being in a relationship with that person. Or think about uh, feeling things for Jesus. If you're like the feeler type where it's like, you know how you really know Jesus and your relationship with them, it's when you raise your hands like, in praise, oh, that person knows Jesus. Or when you cry while you're praying, or like, you know, I want to follow Jesus, and you feel it in your heart. And that's a very, like, a lot of us, we kind of, that's our gauge. Which is why for a lot of us, when you don't feel things for Jesus, when you feel like, you know, I don't feel anything in worship, you feel like, am I even a Christian? Like, is this even real? Because I just haven't felt things in a long time. Uh, and the problem with that, though, is uh, you're making your feelings dictate the relationship. And we know that the absence of feelings does not mean that you're not in a real relationship with somebody. I have kids that I'm with all the time. I love my kids. Sometimes they're in the room with me, and I feel nothing for them. Like, nothing. If anything, I feel negative emotions sometimes. Just like, like, oh my gosh, they're still here in my room. I just need space. And it just bothers me. And if you're not a parent and you're judging me, you wait till you have a kid, you understand. Like, it's just, it's, you know, you just don't really feel much for them in certain moments. Now, in those moments, it's not like our relationship is less real. I am still their father. They're still my kids. I still love them dearly. Just my emotions aren't there right now. The emotions do not equate the relationship. But a lot of us, we treat that like Jesus. If we don't have the emotions, then is he really real? Am I in his relationship? But that's not the case. It could be super real. You're just not feeling it in that moment. Conversely, just because you feel something for somebody, it does not mean you're in a relationship. You know, Beyonce, she came out with her new single, right? And people were, like, waiting for the Beyonce single to come out. I don't know. They even know she had a single out. But I found out because my friend loves Beyonce followed her since her Destiny's Child career, knows her biography, knows all her songs, and so forth. She loves Beyonce. They are not in a relationship. Beyonce don't know her. But she knows a lot of things. She feels, she loves, she cares for Beyonce. But that doesn't matter. Just as you feel things for somebody, it doesn't mean it's real. And for a lot of us, we kind of think that about Jesus. Just You feel something, but that doesn't mean it's real. You could be more in love with your emotions and how you feel about them than you actually feel about the person. And lastly, for some of us, it's doing things for Jesus. 
You know, I, it's not just about knowing or, or, or feeling, but, you know, when I served in the ministry, that's when I really felt close to God. That's when, like, I think God was real, so you want to, you know, or when I go on mission trips, that's when God feels really real, or I'm doing things for Jesus, my hands are getting dirty, and so forth, and uh, again, not, not a bad thing, uh, but oftentimes, uh, sometimes we want to do big things for God, and it's very possible, it's not because of God, but you just like doing big things. You love having, like, purpose in your life. And it could be for social justice, it could be for uh, racial, racial issues, it could be for the unborn, for women, whatever it might be, but you just happen to be, it's because it's God. It's because it's God. Gordon MacDonald, he calls this missionalism, this idea that the belief of my worth in life, it's devoted to being part of God's mission, so it's more about the mission than God. Not saying that's true for everybody, but for some of us, just because you love doing things for God, that does not mean that you're doing it for God. In the message translation of the Bible, I love the way it's kind of, the author translates what Jesus is saying to us about this warning. He says, this is kind of a paraphrase of Jesus' warning. Jesus saying, quote, I can see it now. At the final judgment, thousands strutting up to me saying, Master, we preached the message. We bashed the demons. Our super spiritual projects had everyone talking. And do you know what I'm going to say to them? You missed the boat. All you did was use me to make yourselves important. You don't impress me one bit, you're out of here. You know, my children are getting to an age where they care, they're starting to learn stuff about the Bible. Uh, do you know which character fascinates my kids the most in the Bible? Well, number one is Satan, which is kind of weird. Like, they love talking about Satan. Um, so I don't know what's going on in education, but <laughs> like, Satan is number one. Uh, the number two person who they're most fascinated by, that they talk about all the time, is Judas. Weird, right? They love talking about Judas. Because they're so fascinated by him. And like one of the questions one time my son asked me is, hey, the, uh, dad, does, does God hate Judas? Like, you know, because Judas, he betrayed Jesus. So does God hate him? And, you know, when, I was, when he asked me that question, and I was thinking about this text, uh, it's kind of paraphrasing, I said to him, I don't know if God hates Judas, but I don't think God knows Judas. I don't think he, was in, he knows him. And what I mean by that is this. Judas, you can think about Judas, he was probably in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the crowds. And Judas, he had all the signs of a faithful believer. He heard every sermon Jesus ever gave on earth as one of the 12 disciples. He is orthodox in his belief. Judas, he showed emotion to Jesus. Before he betrayed him, he kissed him. And Judas, he was sent on a mission trip with the 12 disciples, casting out demons all the time. And yet, we find out that Judas, even though he had all these features about him, he had no real relationship with Jesus. And Many of us were like that. And that's kind of scary. Because Jesus in verse 22, he doesn't say, he doesn't, oh, I'm sorry, in verse 21, he doesn't say, uh, a few of you will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I never knew you. Or some of you, what does he say? Many of you. There are many people who think you're legit, you're in a relationship, you're doing these things, and you're going to be shocked when Jesus goes, I have no idea who you are. And so before we move on, let me ask a quick question. Which of these signs do you subconsciously lean upon to say, yeah, this, this is what makes me and Jesus real? And usually you know which one it is by the one you try to ramp up when you're feeling spiritually dry. Some of you, when you feel spiritually dry, you're like, you know, I'm not reading my Bible enough. If I just read my Bible more, then maybe I'll feel closer to God because I just haven't been feeling it these days. So it's all about believing the right things. Or some of you, it's like, you know, I just need to, I just need to feel things for Jesus, so I hope the praise is good today because I want to feel something because that's what you kind of want to ramp up. Or some of you, I just need to serve and do something. I just need to, like, 
be a part of ministry, and that's how I get close to Jesus. But, and Jesus, he warns, all those things are good, all those things are helpful, but do not be surprised if you're doing this and Jesus still does not feel real to you. He may still, there may still be this weird barrier between the two of you because you might be related to Jesus as a philosophical system and worldview of morality that you accept, or he's this emotional experience that you just are kind of drawn to, or he's this activity, but he is not a real person in your life. He is not someone you are in a real, active, living relationship with. And none of those things you're doing demonstrate that it's actually real. It's nice and helpful, but that is not the sign. And so what is it? What is this big thing that Jesus says is what matters most? And that leads to the second point. The true presence of faith. So what does Jesus say? If it's not, if it's not knowing things about God, not feeling things about God, not doing things for God, like what is it that makes us in a general relationship with God? And he says in verse 21. Look what it says in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Very fascinating. Why does Jesus say it's the one who does the will of my Father that are actually in relationship with me? And what does that even mean to do the will of my Father? Let's break it down. I think one way to help out understanding this is an illustration. Uh, before... When I was young, if I ever invited you over to say, hey, come over for dinner, um, and before like marriage and so forth, and you, you came to my place, you would, you would find yourself in a typical bachelor pad. I lived in this apartment called El Cortez. Just, you know, just let that sit, simmer in your heart. And uh, you walk into this upstairs room, you open the door, and what you'll find in my place is you'll find posters everywhere of movies, because I love movies. And you walk in, you'll find a cat kind of going around you, two cats walking around because I love animals. I had cats when I was uh, single. You'll find in the fridge junk food, just kind of stuff, all junk food there. And you'll find like kind of a messy place because, you know, dirty secret, I'm kind of messy. A natural messy guy. And I had a roommate. Uh, my roommate lived with me and he didn't care. He didn't mind. All good so long as our stuff don't interfere with each other. All good with all my posters and cats and so forth. And that's how I lived. And that's what your experience would be if you visited me for dinner. Now today... If I said, hey, come over for dinner, you would have a totally different experience because my place looks radically different because now I'm married. And so if you walk into the house, no more posters. You know what's on our walls? Family photos. It's all family photos that are up there. No cats, just plants. A lot of green plants everywhere in the house for some reason. Um, you will find junk food in the fridge, but you'll also find something that was never there when I was a single person. You'll find lettuce and tomatoes vegetables, it's, it's all over there. And you will find not, uh, you'll find a messy desk, but everything else is going to be pretty clean. And the reason why is because my wife is not just my roommate, she's my marriage partner. We're in a marriage relationship. It's not just my will being done in this house, it's her will shaping everything. Because that's what it looks like to be in a marriage relationship with them. Can you imagine if I said, hey, you know, hon, I just want to be roommates with you, so I'm going to put my poster up and do my own thing. You know, if I fought her long enough, that might, she might be okay with it, but it's going to cause this weird distance between us because I'm just kind of forcing my will upon her. But marriage, it's supposed to work where your will is being shaped by each other. And I think this is what Jesus is trying to get at. Those who know Jesus and those who Jesus knows, you will see Jesus' will shaping their lives. Not just a part of your life, 
not just your small corner, but your entire life will be shaped not by just your will and your plans and your desires, but you'll see the handprints of God's plans, God's wills, and God's desires. Because Jesus, he's not just a roommate. He's not even a spouse. He's Lord. And he will not accept any other type of relationship with you except him being Lord of your life. And that's where, for us, it's not a genuine sign that you're in a relationship with Jesus if you just say he's Lord, or you feel he's Lord, or you even believe he's Lord. But is he living as Lord? Is he actually functioning as Lord? Do you allow him to be Lord of your life? And you know you are when you ask the question, is his will shaping your life? Now, when you think about this, like the will of God, if you grew up in Sunday school or so forth, it's such a churchy term, like do the will of God. And it's like, okay, well, what does that mean? Like, how do I do the will of God and make sure that's something that I'm living out? And we tend to complicate that question a lot because I don't know about you, but when the will, like what's the will of God in my life? It usually involves like three things. Uh, is it God's will for me to get this job? Please pray for me. I, I want to just do God's will. Or is it God's will if I move away? Should I, should I move? Is it here or there? And please pray for me. Or is it God's will that I get married or if my person gets sick or, and they get healed? Like, what's God's will? And that's when we pray really intently because we think that's God's will. And uh, if that's your definition of, you know, following God's will, where I move, who I marry to, like those four things in life, you run into a couple problems. Um, one is that you oftentimes never find out what God's will is in those areas. Like, you don't know if God, like, I don't know if you guys are meant to marry that person. Like, I don't know. I don't know if we're supposed to move there, and I don't think it's ever clear. Uh, but even bigger than that is when you do that, uh, those situations, there's nothing you could do about it most of the times. There's nothing clear to do to do God's will in those situations. And so you're kind of like, how do you follow what Jesus is saying? Like, those who do the will of my Father, they are in a relationship with me. And so I think what actually is helpful is to break down in different categories what it means to do God's will. Like, what is God's will? And this kind of helped me. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, uh, there's a verse that I think kind of breaks it down nicely where it says, quote, this is uh, in the book of the law, uh, Moses says, the secret things belong to our Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Three things. Secret things, revealed things, things we may do. Or to put it in layman's terms, three ways to understand God's will, okay? Here's the first one. First category. God's divine will. God is sovereign, we believe. He knows all things. He knows where you're going to live. He knows who you're going to marry. He knows if you're going to be healthy or sick. He knows where you're going to live and what kind of career you're going to have, but he's just not telling you. You will never know why. Why? I have no idea. It's his divine will. And oftentimes when it comes to his divine will, the part that we are most curious about, that we want to know, that we categorize as God's will, it mainly deals with our circumstances, does it not? It's our circumstances that we want to know that God does not tell us. That's his divine will. But the Bible also talks about that's one aspect, but there's also what's called his revealed will, where God tells us, this is what I have planned for you. And it's all over the Bible. You want to know what God's will is for you, his revealed will? It's disappointing, okay? He wants you to be generous. He wants you to be peaceful. He wants you to be sexually pure. He wants you to be gracious. He wants you to be worshipful. In other words, you know what God's will for you? It's your character. It has to do with your character, what type of person you're becoming. 
And we see that, we hear that preached, and we go, okay, I get it. So God wants me, it's not what, where I am, but like well, who I am, got it. How do I do that? Because that sounds really hard. Because you're right. Because those are character issues. And so that's where it's helpful for this third category to be in our brain, to follow God's will. Not just the divine will, not just the revealed will, but God's daily will. God's daily will. There are things God presents to us every single day, and we have a choice to make of what we're going to do. Are we going to follow my will or God's will? My plans or God's plan in this moment? You want to be generous? It's hard to be, hey, be generous. Okay, I'm going to do God's will, be generous. That's hard. But you know how you can be generous? Tomorrow, decide, choose, tip your waiter. Tip your waiter, not 10%, 15%. That's a choice. And you could choose to be skimpy or to be actually someone who's generous. You want to not be anxious? That's really hard to follow that. But the daily will of God is, hey, today pray. Prayer eases your anxiousness and your worries. You want to be sexually pure? That's really hard. But here's the thing. Tomorrow, don't sleep with your boyfriend. Don't sleep with your girlfriend. Don't watch porn tonight. That's a choice that you have to make. That's either your will or God's will. You want to be gracious? Don't be mean to that, that mean customer. Show them grace to that person who's being rude to you in that moment. You want to be worshipful? Go to church. Go to church. That's your choice. You could choose. All of these things are based on your choice. And you all have a choice. Am I going to do God's will today and what God desires and what he plans? Or am I going to do what I want to do, my desires and my plans? We often think those three to four big things that we have in life, property, marriage, and so forth, that that's going to change our lives the most. So we pray about it and we search God's will. But those thousands of choices that you are about to make today and tomorrow, that will shape you way more than those three to four choices that are happening in your life. Because what you choose to do every single moment, it's either going to be your will or God's will, and that's going to add up at the end of your life. You can choose to go to church and worship, or you can choose to stay home today. Choose to pray and read your Bible tomorrow or scroll on your iPhone. Respond to kindness or anger. Whatever it might be. You have a choice every single day, and whatever you are regularly choosing, that actually reveals how real your relationship is with Jesus. If you know God's will, like, I know what God wants me to do, but I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do what I want to do. He is an acquaintance to you. He might be a life coach to you. He offers you good advice. But he's not Lord. He's not Lord to you. And if he's not Lord to you, he doesn't know you. If you know God's will, and you go, fine, I'll do it, and you're just like angry about it, or like, I guess I'll do it, because I don't want him to get mad, and you feel guilty about it, he's not just Lord to you, he's like a tyrant. And it's not the fact that he doesn't know you, you don't know him. Because the real sign that you actually really know God, and God knows you, is you know God's will, you strive to follow God's will, you fail all the time, and you keep trying, and you keep trying, you pick yourself back up, you keep striving because you remember that he is a good and gracious God. God is not just Lord, but he is a gracious king, a gracious Lord. And he shows that in the gospel. 
Jesus did not come to just lord over us, but he came to also die for us. He died for the way that we fail him all the time in following his will. And when that's real in your heart, you keep striving. You keep striving to follow his will. And you know that when you fall, that he is gracious and he will forgive and he just causes us to keep going and keep following him. That's, what, that's the sign. Are you willing to submit your will to God? Little by little, each and every day. So when you do an inventory of your life, how much of it would you say is shaped by your will, what you want to do and your plans? And how much can you honestly say is shaped by God's will, his plans, his desires? Some of us, to be frank, we need to stop pretending we're married to Jesus. A lot of us, we pretend like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm married to Jesus. He's in my life, but you just sleep with him on Sundays. He's just someone you use on Sundays. He's a lover to feel good about, but then he's just gone for the rest of your life. And Jesus, the old Testament talks about all the time, do not treat me like a whore, God says. That's not the way he wants to relate to us. And some of us, the first thing we have to do is just admit that's what we've been doing. And we have to repent of that. Some of us, we're actually like, you know, I'm actually God. I try to follow him in all of my life. I fail, but I try. But to be honest, there's one area of my life that the doors are locked. God's voice is not there. It's my will be done. And when that happens, whether it be your dating relationship or your finances or your view of family, whatever it might be, that's the idol that's preventing you and Jesus from really being close to feeling intimate. You're not distant from God because you're not reading your Bible enough. There's something going on in your life that is being shut out, and Jesus has no say in that whatsoever because it's your will being done. This one area of your life. And some of us, we're striving, but we're just, like, discouraged. Because we are just failing all the time. We're making wrong choices all the time. And some of us, we need to remember, but remember, he is a good and gracious king. He's a good and gracious king. And he wants us to experience forgiveness and grace. Keep following his will so you can experience that. And this does not happen naturally. This is not automatic. This is where we need to know one last thing. And that leads to the last point, the necessary practice of faith. Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with this illustration, this picture. And it's a picture of two people building two different houses. And if you have your programs again, if you read with me one last time, verse 24 to 27, look what Jesus says. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. What's Jesus talking about here? Two homes being built by two people. When we think of a house, we think, oh yeah, my place that I buy, that I'll rest at, that I'll resell once the economy and the property value goes up and so forth. In the first century, totally different. In the first century in Jesus' time, your house was where you die because it was ancestral property. You live there, your kids are going to live there, your grandkids, their grandkids, it is your property forever. Not only that, all your grandparents and everybody, they live together in that same property. And you don't just rest there, you work from there. They're all farmers. They're all working remotely back in the first century. Their home was their business. Their business was their home. In other words, what Jesus is talking about here is your whole life. These are two people building their lives. They are building their lives, and they are choosing to build it a certain way. And on the outside, they look exactly the same. 
Notice the two houses, no distinguishing features externally. They could both be two stories, freshly painted white, white picket fence, but what's the big difference? The thing you do not see, which is the foundation, what is underneath. One house is being built on a rock, the other one's being built on sand. And this applies to us where all of us, we look similar. We're all in a home, we all have jobs, we all are here at church, and the main difference is not what we are doing, but what is going on underneath us. What is, what is actually happening? Are we, is it filled with our will, or is it filled with God's will that's actually taking place? And here's the big difference. It's not just us knowing God's will, but what does he say? Those who hear and does it. Whoever does it, that's when you know your foundation is covered in God's will like a stone versus it being like sand. The wise person, according to Jesus, he hears everything that Jesus is saying, works it into their life because they know this is true life. Versus the fool, the, he, it's kind of insulting. It's, it's, uh, the Greek word is moron, literally moron. <laughs> the moron, Jesus says, you hear everything Jesus says. You agree with it. You even believe it. You just don't do it. You just don't do it. And Jesus doesn't say why you don't do it. Some of, some of us, it's like, it's, I don't do it because work is crazy. It's crazy right now. Or I have young kids. My kids are really young. It's hard to do this. Or COVID. You know, COVID was really hard. By the way, COVID was a long time ago. Like, that was a while back. But for some of us, it's still like the hangover is there. And what Jesus is saying is no matter what situation you're in, you are slowly building a foundation. Your choices are slowly adding up, building a foundation, shaping how you pray, shaping how generous you are, shaping your sexuality. It's shaping all these things, and what's shaping you? Is it you doing your will, or are you doing God's will? And here's the biggest problem. No one can tell the difference. If, if one person's following God's will, and another person's doing their own will, nobody knows. We all look the same. The houses look the same. Do you know when it gets revealed? When it actually shows up that something's different, the rain comes, and the wind hits, and the flood comes. That's when something happens. You, you find out the difference of whose will you're following, not when you're searching for a career, but it's when you fail in your career. How are you going to handle that? It's not in the beginning of your marriage that you discover what's God's will, like am I following God's will? But it's in the middle of a marriage, and it's really hard. It's not when life is busy that you kind of go, what's God's will? But when life feels unbearable, that's when it's like, wait, where is God's will in your life? Have you been living by your, your plans, your desires, or is it God's desires? Because your choices, the choices you make every day, it shapes, next slide, the choices you make every day, all the things that you choose daily, oh, still that slide, but all good, just use your imagination, all the choices you make every single day, it shapes your character, and your character eventually, it shapes the circumstances of your life, how you view it, how you understand it. I just got an email from a friend uh, whose mother unexpectedly passed away, and it's sad, because I knew, this, I knew these, these, these sisters for a long time, and life finally hit them. And I think for a lot of us, life is hitting us. Life isn't easy. It's really hard. I know a, a parent who, these, a group of parents who their child has a disability that's not genetic, it just came out of nowhere. We just presume everybody has healthy, happy babies. Uh, but there's parents out there, like their babies are sick. I know a couple, they had met the love of their lives two years ago, now they're divorcing. They're in the middle of separation. 
And when I look at that, that's life. That's life. That's the wind. That's the storm. And when that happens to you, because not if, when it happens to you, what will you be thinking? What's hap- why is this happening to me? I always experience stuff like this. What's God's problem? Where are you? And if it's always our plan and our will that's shaping us, then that's going to be how we respond. But if every day in these small doses, it's like I, I'm following God's will, and it's not easy, but I'm striving, it's doable, and that shapes our character where it's about God's will and his plans, not mine, when those circumstances come that you just cannot control, the divine will appears, what ends up happening is you're able to trust what God is doing a little bit better. It makes it a little bit more digestible in the midst of all that because you are not just waiting for that moment to trust God. You're slowly just practicing your faith and following and trusting him. And this is the foundation of how you actually build a relationship with God. And so, with that being said, can I close out the Sermon on the Mount series with just a couple of final exhortations in light of Jesus' warning? One exhortation is this. First, church... I hope, in light of this, we can be a church that doesn't just agree with what Jesus is saying or even believe what Jesus says, but we strive to live it out. We strive to leave it out. Information does not lead to transformation. It just leads to us knowing a lot of stuff. We need to practice. Practice what Jesus is saying. Because as we learn and as we practice, that's when something really starts to shape us. That's when we start looking and feeling close and forming in the way that the Spirit wants us to be formed. Let's strive to live this out. And not just strive to live it out on Sundays, but second invitation is let's do this every day. So, you know, some of us here, we really underestimate the Sunday gathering. Like some of us, we think, you know, church this Sunday, I'll come this week, and next week I'll, you know, I'm busy, and this week I'm busy, and I'll come back, and it's like this once a month thing, and we just think we're missing some type of TED talk. But you know, the gathering of the church, it's, we're meeting the living God. And he invites us once a week to meet with him. And we think our souls are not going to be shriveled because we don't meet with him. Like, it doesn't work that way. Like, we have, we're meant to regularly meet with the Lord. And some of us, we really underestimate that. But, you know, others of us, a lot of us, we overestimate the Sundays. Where we think this is the one time that's going to really transform me. And if I just come to church on Sundays, I get transformed. And that's not how the Spirit works. The Spirit walks with us daily, regularly. And every single day, starting today... You have a choice and an opportunity that God presents to you of following him or following yourself. And last exhortation is we have to do this together. Jesus is not talking to individuals. He's talking to a community because he's forming a community that reflects the values of the kingdom. And this is where we have to really spur each other on, prioritize the gatherings, the community itself, because without the community, we are just going to follow our will and never see God's will as being something that's even possible to follow. And so with that being said, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And as I invite the praise team, meaning our brother Andrew, up to lead us in a song of praise. Um, let me just read verses 20 to 29, and we'll close. Verse 20 to 29, the Sermon Mount says, closes with this. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. One who had authority. This is who Jesus is. Not just advice. This isn't just a Sunday school lesson. But Jesus, he is telling us these are the ways of the kingdom. 
This is how you flourish, what I'm saying to you. And the way you can enter the kingdom is acknowledge me as your king. And so as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, can I pray for us and we'll reflect on that together. Let's pray.